Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name's Christian Allen. I'm here with my co-host. You know him as Rodney the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's up, man? Hey, I am doing great. So I'm excited today because we are going to have a very real discussion about the top five reasons that some people just choose not to implement the investment optimizer. Yeah. And my hope here, Rod, was just that we could have a real transparent uh, educational discussion and help people who might be having these types of concerns to think through them. Uh, first off, to know, to understand that there's other people who feel that can feel the same way. And yeah. then we're going to kind of talk through the way we see them and why we still utilize the investment optimizer ourselves and why we see so many of our clients actually doing it. So we're going to hit on both the concerns, the challenges, and then we're going to hit on some of the, the ways to overcome those challenges. Does that sound fair? That sounds great. Yeah. Because we have these conversations do? every day with people and it's... It's just real, right? These are the real things that we encounter all the time. Yep, I 100% agree. The next thing that we're going to do, Rod, is we're going to count down from what we're going to call least important or maybe least frequent, the least the, the less frequent things that come up to like the more like real substantive issues, right? Yeah. So we're sure. going to do kind of a countdown. That's how we're going to roll through this. Okay, without further ado, Rod, let's jump into our top five reasons. The number one, sorry, the number one, the number five reason yes. we have here is because we see, the, and we see this, too much hype, not enough substance. So here's what that means to me. And then I'll turn the mic over to you for a second, Rod. I just feel like in the infinite banking crowd, right? And that's where we get oftentimes get lumped mm -hmm. in with yeah, um, because we're using high cash value life insurance. Um, but there is... Absolutely, in my perspective, from my perspective, too much hype around what infinite banking can do for people, mm -hmm. right? It's oversold, overpromised. Um, and I know that I could go into examples here, and maybe it was misunderstanding on my part, but I just remember having those discussions about these darn banks and how we can become the bank. But like yeah. how you know the banks are banks are really cool. They can bring in money and they can lend them out multiple times. That's really awesome. They can bring in one dollar and leverage it to 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 take out like six or seven. Well, guess what? Infinite banking does not do that. So if that was what you were thinking it was a lead up to, it's not that. And and I just think like it's a very real issue. Infinite banking is absolutely oversold, overhyped. Um, and um, and and sometimes it's just like push to an extreme. And so again, right. I think the biggest issue is that some people are looking at that and they're saying like, okay, can it really do all the things that these people are saying it can do? Yeah. Yeah. And I put that into two categories. So like you said, kind of trying to do too much. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, again, the, the purists out there, the pure infinite bankers out there are telling you basically put all your money into a life insurance policy, make all of your expenses come out of that policy and then the, the second piece is that you're it, it's entirely based around creating this interest rate arbitrage. In other words, because you're always going to earn more 
in the in the cash value than the interest that you're paying on the loan that's where you're creating the, creating the value that's why you should do it in the first place right mm. and number one we know that the interest rate arbitrage doesn't always happen we're, we're actually pushing into a time right now where i think a lot of people are going to be disappointed where they'll be paying more on their loans than what they're earning in their the dividends on their policies and will that kill their their plan and and like everything blows up hopefully not but i think there actually will be will be some situations where they were just trying too hard and and it just kind of put it to an unnecessary extreme yeah and that's it it's usually an extreme thing my first exposure to infinite banking was my sister who i don't even know if she would remember this now but basically someone that a financial guy came talk to her about the idea of putting all of her their check like they get their paycheck mm -hmm. they put it directly into the policy and i just i remember thinking then that sounds like hokey and ridiculous guess what i know a lot about life insurance probably more than most people mm -hmm. i still think it's hokey and ridiculous so yeah. there you go i just think it's true okay so rod talk a little bit about the way that we view it and and maybe why it's a little bit different less focused on the hype more focused on the reality yeah, we're with Investment Optimizer, we're not trying to do all of those things. We're basically saying for anyone who currently is investing or is wanting to get into primarily cash flow investing, real estate, their business, etc. And the temptation or the the kind of default is to do that through your savings account. Well, let's let's figure out a better way. Let's actually use a vehicle where we can earn a consistent return. That return is tax-free. We still have access to the funds and we use them. But as we do that, we're creating some additional arbitrage, but not necessarily because I'm paying a, a lower interest rate than what I'm earning. I might, right? There, there'll be times when I'm doing that, but it's that difference between paying simple interest on the loan versus earning compounding interest inside of my account. And that that's just always going to happen, right? So uh, it's the, it's a flow thing. It's a it's an efficiency within the investment world where we're adding an additional layer of profitability and that's it, right? We're, we're not trying to make it be more than that because that's enough, right? That's a huge benefit for anybody who invests. I like the example. We just did a webinar, recorded a webinar in the last couple of days. And one of the examples that we talked about was the ATM fund deal, right? That mm -hmm. uh, the buck offers at Wealth Formula. and uh, one of the things we did with that is we created a pro forma and the pro forma was basically to show what the value of, or the return on the investment looks like when you run it through your bank account versus mm -hmm. running it through the policy. And it was producing like an extra 4% return just by making that very simple kind of, and slight adjustment to where you flow the money from. So yeah. make, it is a big, so there's like, what we love about life insurance and about the investment optimizer strategy is that it absolutely does what we say it did, right? Mm -hmm. The math is right there and behind it, Yeah. but we don't want to pretend that it's doing things that it's not. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Right. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So number five, too much hype, not enough substance. I think that there's legitimacy to it, but if you focus on the core elements of what it actually does, uh, then it becomes, easier to understand locks in. Okay. So number four, Rod, is that sometimes it can seem complex and confusing. I'm going to let you hit on the second thing. I'm going to hit on the first thing. So, okay. so 
life insurance is a little bit complex and confusing. If you're not in the life insurance world, I think it's 100% fair and reasonable for someone to think like, gosh, there's all these different types of life insurance. There's like, you know, there's, there's index universal life and there's regular universal life and there's variable universal life and there's whole life and there's term. There's all these different things and they have different mechanics in the way that they work. So like the reality is, is that life insurance does have some moving parts. Now, the good news is, is that once you understand how life insurance works in general, you pretty much understand the moving parts in all of life insurance, right? Mm, yeah. So while they they might have slightly different terminology from one product type to to the next, at the core of it, they they're pretty similar, right? They one of them grow they grow cash value. If you're talking about a cash value policy, grows mm -hmm. cash value has a death benefit. Those are the two core elements. I, I probably shouldn't get into all of the how life insurance works right now. But I think it's fair to say that there's logic. It's logical to feel like it's complex and confusing. Simple. Yeah. As that. And, and so our second point really is because the alternative is just so easy. If I'm using my savings account, I put the money in there. When I'm ready to invest, I take the money out and I go and I invest with it. Right. So it, it has to really be worth adding that extra layer to do it. And, and again, we feel like it is, we'll get into that here in a minute, but, uh, but the person really has to understand and feel that. Okay. So here's the good news, Rod. Once you do it and get it in place, it's pretty streamlined and yeah. really like the mechanics, again, they, they, I get why they seem confusing, but it's no different than somebody who hasn't been inside of any world. Right. So if yeah. I, if I haven't been inside the real estate world, it seems very complex and confusing from a distance. Mm -hmm. Once I understand the terminologies and I get around that, it's actually not not as as complex and confusing as it might seem. The same thing applies here. Um, once you get the kind of core mechanics in place, it becomes very simple to use on a consistent basis without having to put time, energy, effort into it. Yeah. And I think that's a great example because I think about people who invest in syndications, for example, they're not saying they have to know everything about the property, how how it gets purchased, how it gets financed, how it gets managed, but they have to know enough and be comfortable with the operator enough to say, I'm I'm willing to give you the money and and then let you go do your thing. And then I'll, I'll trust that that's going to create some sort of cash flow or return coming back to me. Mm. In the same way, you want to align yourself with people who know what they're doing, you can trust. And so that when you once you set that up, like you said, it becomes streamlined and just becomes a, a part of what you do to just create more value in your world as you're investing. It's a good point. And at the core of it, we're looking for the benefit that it provides. Yeah. Right. So while it is important to be knowledgeable and to understand, it's also reasonable to rely on people who are experts let's just yep. say it that way okay but again the the good news is the complexity is gone once you jump into the into some of the details and once you get it in place you don't even have to worry about it it becomes really easy it's not significantly more difficult than um getting money from any other bank or whatever yep okay rod number three we're we're starting to count down to the big ones here yeah number three <laughs> And this is real, Rod. Number three, it's hard to work into the timing of our investments. I, like Sometimes there's just a liquidity issue. Talk yeah. a little bit about what you see uh, meeting with clients every day. 
Yeah. If, if someone is all in on, on this kind of cash flow investing, they have their money out there. It's deployed in properties, in their business, in illiquid places, at least for now, then, you know, that they learn about it, they get up to speed and then they say, okay, now how do I do it? How do I, how do I put money into a policy where the money is already kind of locked up in, in the properties? Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to put money somewhere when I don't have the money available. Yes. Like that's pretty. And so I think from like a concern standpoint or from a reason to not implement, well, that's a pretty legitimate one. Yeah. So the question is, how do you, how do you work around it? Or, Or what do we do if that's us? Yeah. The, the biggest thing that I think makes a difference on this is what we call the funding range with the policy. And what that means is when someone is starting up their policy, let's just use a, a really round number that, you know, like in our webinars and whatnot, we use someone putting a hundred thousand a year into their policy. Right. Mm-hmm. So they say, I, I think that's a great idea. I want to do that. Even if I have a hundred thousand today, I don't necessarily know I'm always going to have that each year as that comes around. What do I do? When we set up the policy, we'll set it with a hundred thousand as the maximum end of the, of the funding range. And that's as much as you can put in each year into the policy, but the minimum end of the range is going to be somewhere around 20, 25,000. So there's a huge range. There's a lot of flexibility in the way that we do that. So it allows us to be number one, flexible, creates flexibility, but number two, it allows us to be creative in, in the way that we set those up. So if someone says, Hey, I, I, I may have the cash now. I don't necessarily know what's going to happen next year. Then we can say, great, let's, pick a funding range that's totally comfortable on the one hand get you as uh the ability to put in as much as possible but also put you at a place where you feel like the lower end of that funding range is totally comfortable if that's all you got in that year it's that's fine because it still does what it needs to uh and then when you do have more money have those kind of liquidity events and have more cash then we can put more in yeah so the solution is to make it part of the system Yes. Part of your investment system. Okay. Yep. Working into the system. And and often what that looks like is as a starting point, they might just say, okay, well, I have X amount that's coming out on a regular monthly or quarterly basis from my investments. Okay, great. Let's yeah. start there. And then later, oh, now I have this liquidity event. It kicked out a couple hundred grand or whatever. Now let's increase. Let's increase my ability to put money into the policy and we often stack policies to do that. You keep the original policy, start a new one. And that's very common as well for people to end up with multiple policies over time for those exact reasons. Yeah, good point. Okay, Rod, I'm just going to review these really quick so nobody forgets. Number five, okay. too much hype, not enough substance. Number four, complex and confusing. Number three, can be hard to work into the timing of investments. And number two, and this is this is challenging for some at, in certain situations, and really for all of us, it's a long term strategy. Like it is yeah. a long term strategy. So talk first about why it's a legitimate concern, and then we'll then we'll talk a little bit more about the way we see it. Yeah, as we talk with people, uh, it, it's very common for people to feel like, okay, I have a really good idea for what's going to happen this year, like where I am now, and in the next couple of years, what I can realistically anticipate. But beyond that, I have no idea. I don't know what necessarily right. what I'll be doing, where I'll be living, et cetera, right? I have an idea. I have hopes. I have dreams. I have goals. Uh, but because I don't know for certain what's going to happen, it makes it difficult to make long-term plans as it relates to something like this, that people don't want to be 
locking themselves into something if they don't necessarily know that that's their, you know, where they'll be in five years or whatever. Well, and for some people, it's just their personality, right? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so like they could have a ton of money and like have really like, it would be ludicrous to be in a position where it's an, where it's, there's any challenge or, or liquidity issue at all. And yet some people just still feel that, right? They just feel like, okay, I know where I'm at today. I have $5 million in my bank account and I can put a couple hundred thousand dollars here, whatever, but I'm still worried that I won't be able to do it in a, in a couple years from now for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. So people just think that way. And I think it's, it's a fair reason to think about it. And like you said, people also just get uncomfortable with the idea of feeling boxed in, in anything. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I feel that way. We all feel it's kind of like the first time that you go and sign a mortgage, right? It feels like really scary. You're like, okay, this is like, this is it. Yeah. This is my life for the next 30 years. Right. Like that's just the way it is. And, and once you get a little bit more experience, you start to realize like, uh, maybe that's not quite how it works. Right. Like Mm -hmm. most people end up refinancing a bunch of times throughout their life. And, you know, and, and there's, you know, most people move several times and like, the same things, the same kind of things apply here. We just have to be prepared for those things and make sure that the that we've strategically planned in a way that will will allow for those types of events to come without being an issue. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit about some of the ways that we plan specifically for those kind of issues. Why don't you? Yeah, touch the, on the first one, Rod. The first one is really similar to the one I said before. Let, let's build it for the near term, the things that we know and can predict and then make adjustments as we go. And that can include with the idea of the funding range. Uh, maybe, maybe I put in more in those initial few years and for planning purposes, think, okay, what if I don't put as much in later? Okay, great. We can show you what that looks like. But the good news is, is if I get there and I, I'm still where I hope I am, I, I want to be, then I can put more in, right? But for planning purposes, we can we can approach it, you know, cautiously or, or you know, be careful with that. And as an extension to that, so we talked about the funding range in terms of how much I, money I put in each year. There's also this kind of minimum funding uh, threshold. We call it the 12x rule, and that is again going back to the funding range. In my example I used earlier, if 100,000 is your max and 25 is your minimum. Our rule of thumb is once you've put in 12 times that minimum number total, then you have enough value in the policy that you, even if you never put another dime into it, it's still going to, you know, build out and and create you all this, the 5% tax-free return access and use it for investing all the things that we want from it, even if that's all you ever got into it. So in that example, that's 300,000. Whether well, that's I, over three years because they hit the max every mm-hmm. year or whether it took them five years or more to get that 300,000 in, that that's kind of that minimum threshold. They can basically their funding range gets, goes from the 25 to 100. Now it's zero to 100 a year. So, yeah. And, th- and that's complete freedom, right? Because I can yeah. put nothing into it or I can continue to fund it at any at any number in between that. Okay. So, Rod, do you know what life insurance whole life insurance used to be called like back in oh i don't really know but i'm 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 laying it out there and i'm going to make it hard okay rod if you were to guess what did whole life insurance specifically used to be what was oh gosh this is a struggle i want to ask a question that you can guess but i'm trying okay. to figure out how to make how to make this work 
Okay, Rod. So here's the question. In conjunction with our 12X rule, right? Okay. Life insurance used to sometimes have a kind of a funny name to it. Do you recall what that was? Uh, I have a feeling you're going to the, and I'm, I, I'm trying to remember the actual word. Is it diminishing premiums? Oh yeah, you were close. Vanishing. Okay. Vanishing. Vanishing, vanishing premiums. Yeah. Okay. So life insurance used to have a funny nickname and they would, a whole life, sorry, I want to be clear. Whole life insurance was designed to be called vanishing premium. And the idea was that after a certain point, you don't have to put money into it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So here's what's happening. When we put, let's go back to your example, Rod, $100,000 in and our minimum is $20,000 or $25,000 and our maximum is $100,000, we are literally putting four or five years of premium into the policy, yeah. right? So by the time I've done that three years, for three years, I could have put 12 to 15 years of premium. Well, guess what? That's when the vanishing premium kicks in. I don't have to worry about premium anymore because the policy has enough value inside it to continue on indefinitely so again for just just to kind of create context around that i think it's helpful for people to know that life insurance whole life insurance is designed to not need ongoing premiums indefinitely yeah and and one thing that i'll often get from someone is they'll say okay uh, i want to look at a scenario where what if i only put in the three years great let's yeah. look at that okay but what if i put in 30 years <laughs> Great. Let's look at that. And then what their assumption is, is that I did something different on the three-year example versus the 30. And it's, it's like a revelation to them when I say, no, the structure of the policy, your starting point is the exact same either way. The same policy can be fine, even if it's only funded for three years. But the good news is it's the exact same policy, exact same structure that I set up on the front end that allows you to continue funding it for However, basically, however long you want, and and that's that's relieving for people, right? They know they can stop sooner if if they want to, or life dictates that, or just whatever. But more likely scenario is that they'll want to continue funding and will be able to. Okay, Rod. Let's talk about exit strategies. If we don't want to be locked in, mm -hmm. then we probably need to understand what are my options for walking away or getting out. And okay. really, when I say getting out, I mean getting my money out. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the first one is the most common, most likely scenario. And that is that I use it for as the investment optimizer for my investing. I get that value out of it. Now I have a bunch of money sitting in the cash value when I'm I'm using the word retirement. But, you know, for, for people we work with often, it's just they're they're slowing down on their investments and now they're kind of turning them into to cash flow that they can live off of. That's the most common exit strategy. Um, people may be familiar with the term LERP, right? Life insurance retirement planning. So you have the cash value. You can access it tax-free as a, another source of cash flow in retirement. That's the most likely. Okay. So the first one is tax-free retirement, but taco let's, okay. So let me just break down really quick how retirement how it, the life insurance policy actually works inside of that retirement planning component. So we basically have two pieces that are coming up. One specifically talking about whole life insurance, you've got withdrawals <laughs> and that just is what it sounds like. You're just taking money out, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have loans. Well, 
loans sounds funny because in this term, when we talk about loans, now when we're in our earlier stage in investing, those loan we'll we'll take the loan and then we'll pay it back and we'll do that over and over again, right? Yep. Replenish the opportunity fund. But when we get into the retirement phase, our phase two, that's when we're going to pull the money out. We're not going to pay it back. Right. Okay. So if our intention is to not pay it back, we're going to adjust slightly the way that we pull the money out. Here's what we do. We first take the withdrawals to basis. Basis just means the amount of money I put in. So let's say that I put in the 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 exam the example that we gave before. I put in three years. I have $300,000 of basis. Then that money I'm going to pull out first. And then from there, the cash value that's in addition to that $300,000, I'm going to pull out on a loan basis with mm -hmm. no intention to pay it back until the death benefit comes in and pays it back for me. So I'm yep. pulling it out and I don't have any concern about the loan because, because I'm earning just as much interest as I'm paying on the loan. So it's not having any negative effect or drag on the policy. Okay. But long and short of it is when we're in the tax-free retirement side, we take withdrawals to basis, then we take loans. The other couple of ways that we can get out of the policy are through what we call a full cash out, right? I could just say, okay, I have all this money. I'll mm -hmm. give you an example. And, and maybe we'll talk about the pros and cons of doing this. So let's say that I put in my 300000 and now it has $600,000 of cash, mm -hmm. right? Um, I could literally walk up to the or walk up you probably wouldn't walk up to the life <laughs> that's no that's teller. probably that's yeah. not a very that's not a very productive <laughs> but you could you could get into catch with us or we could talk to the life insurance company and say okay we want all of our money out just yeah. all of it immediately we want to terminate the contract take all of our money out here's what would happen we would get a big old check for six hundred thousand dollars the negative is we'd also get a notice from the IRS that we owe some tax on it. Mm -hmm. So we would not get the long-term tax benefits. We'd just basically be like mit mitigating some of the tax benefit. Now it's still not nothing because I got the money. It was tax deferred the whole time it was in there. It's just that beyond the 300,000 that I put in, the IRS is going to say, well, that's gain. Therefore you owe taxes on it. Well, here's the good news. Once you get into the policy and have funded it for the that 12x rule that Rod talked about, once you've done that, there's really no reason to ever terminate the policy outside mm -hmm. of the last exit strategy, which is death. So here's the deal. If you get into it, the easiest, the best two ways to get money out are through retirement income, loans for investments, and dying. Yeah. That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, in my experience, the, the whole cash out thing, mostly people just want to know that they can, right? Often they'll ask, okay, I, I see that look at the illustration, right? I see that, that cash value sitting there. Like, is that mine? Could I just have them send me a check? Absolutely. Whatever yep. you want. And, and especially with whole life, whatever your cash value is, that's also your, what they call the surrender value, the actual dollar amount that they will send you if you were to cash it out. So yes. That's your money. One of the things that's really cool, Rod, is we usually, we normally use Penn Mutual. I, I probably shouldn't say their name, but I just did. Um, but uh, we probably, one of the benefits that we really like is that they have this really cool rider so that when I get into this phase where I'm pulling money out, one of the concerns that people have is that, well, what if I pull too much money out and I trigger a tax 
tax burden all of a sudden. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you can't do that by accident, number one. And number two, companies like Penn have the ability, have this rider, which basically makes it impossible to do. So you don't have to be concerned when we're in this in this retirement income phase about potentially taking out too much money, lapsing the policy and owing taxes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Rod. Beautiful. That we have now gotten to the number one reason. And can I just say that this is the real reason? <laughs> yes. All of the other reasons are just kind of like... They uh, happen. They're conversations. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, yeah. Like, but the reality is, is that this is the reason. And so we're going to spend a few minutes and break down exactly what the deal is here. Okay. Number yeah. one is the upfront cost. And let's talk about why it's a legitimate concern, Rod. And it's a really simple solution here. It's a really simple answer, I should say. The answer is that there are real costs inside of the policy. When yeah. I put money into the policy, like we'll stick with our $100,000 example. When I put that first $100,000 in there, I don't immediately have a full $100,000 available, right? Yep. So I might go from $100,000 available to seventy-five dollars or $80,000 that are available to me. Well, the reality is, is that I have experienced a cost at that very moment. Yeah. Okay? So and, that's why it's real. And I'll even have sometimes people will be like, okay, so I, I see the 80,000 sitting there. Where's the rest? Like what happened to the other 20? It's like, uh, it, it's gone. Like it's, <laughs> that was, that was the cost of insurance. That was like, et cetera. Right. So the, those were real costs and it's just, it's not over sitting in a different pile somewhere else. It's just, it's not yours anymore. It's, it's gone. It's the cost. That is the cost of creating all of the benefits that we normally talk about, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about creating the tax-free income. We talk about being able to utilize the loans to invest in multiple places at the same time. We talk about the death benefit. We talk about creating a 5% plus tax-free return. Mm -hmm. Well, in order to do that, that's the cost of doing it. Yeah. And if I'm being totally honest, like it's a little painful anytime you you put money somewhere and you suddenly have less of it. Like sure. that, I'm going to feel that. Right. Yep. So the reality is, is this kind of goes back to our second one, which is it is a long-term strategy, right? Or long, I should say long-term it's longer term. In fact, I want to go on a little bit of a rant about this for a second, because okay. I was, I was thinking about this just this morning. And if I'm an investor, like we have these, we have graphs that show like, I'll get well. One example that we often use is the example where we show hundred thousand a year for the first five years going into the policy. That money then is going into the syndication investment, and we show an example of what that looks like over twenty years mm -hmm. using a bank account versus using the investment optimizer. Well, yep. over the twenty years, we come out two million dollars ahead in the investment optimizer, um, but it takes some time before we move ahead of it because of the the original cost. The nice thing is on the on that chart, we show very clearly that those costs are real. So in the first year, I'm investing less money when I go through the investment optimizer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So here's the deal though, Rod. If I'm an investor, I'm probably not only investing for 20 years, like unless I start at the age of 70 and I'm gonna live to 90. But like for most of most of us investors, wealth builders, like they might start in the you know early maybe it's 30 maybe it's 35 maybe it's 40 even right mm -hmm. but like there's still 30 40 plus years potentially left of investing so from a long term perspective while 10 years feels like a long time 
it's really not. And so like when we show the example, we say, okay, over, over these 20 years, you can create an extra 2 million bucks. But like what happens when you do that over 50 years, mm -hmm. right? Between the ages of 30 and when I die at 80, that could be the difference in another 10, 50, who knows, $10 million of net worth that I created just by choosing to not use a bank account and instead use the investment optimizer. But unfortunately, dang it, Rod, I have to lose that initial cost in order to get there. Yeah, that's a great okay. point. And and I would I would clarify it also by saying this, that uh, even if, right, even if someone comes to us, they, they didn't know anything about all of this until they got into their, their 50s or even their 60s, uh, e even if you only did invest for the next five years, 10 years, and then you were moving into that retirement phase, well, you still have the policy beyond that. It's still creating yeah. that value for Great you, point. even though you're not actively, you know, money, moving the money through it like we show on, on that example. So Yeah, that's a good point too. So the policy is likely going to be enforced for the duration of your life. That's what we mm -hmm. hope, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we put it out there. Okay, so let's talk about the way we see it. Obviously, I've been hitting on a few of those points, but let's get real clear about it. So first off, Rod, talk about the way we see startup costs. Yeah, it's it's similar to what you would if you're starting a business or or when you buy a piece of real estate or even if you're buying a stock, right? There, you have... When, when we do this, you have an upfront cost that's just part of doing business. Yep. If you don't take on that cost, you don't start the business. You don't buy the stock. You don't buy, buy the real estate. So that's, yeah, that's a great point. It's a package deal. And life insurance is built to have the, again, the, the cost is just built up front. It just is like mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And can I just tell you, I would love for life insurance to change that and mm -hmm. spread it over a long period of time. Because if the if the upfront cost wasn't here, Rod, we would sell policies to every person we talk oh, to yeah. because it's a oh, no-brainer, yeah. right? Yeah. So anyway, okay. So I, I can get off a on a tangent on that. But here's the deal. We're minimizing the cost. I think that's mm -hmm. important for people to realize. While there is still a cost, it is significantly less than it would be traditionally. So what we do, we create, we call it max a maximum overfunded dividend paying whole life insurance policy. And the reason we state that whole long name out there is because it means something. And really for us, it means that we minimize cost, we maximize cash. And by doing that, it's obviously creating a better benefit for the investor. So while there is cost, we are doing everything in our power to minimize it. And by the way, we have every intention of trying to like figure out how to make it even lower as time goes on. Okay. Rod, talk about, talk about, well, I'm trying to decide if we should talk about the 5% tax free return first or talk about the value being they're the, they're kind of one and the same. So take yeah. us home with this last point. Okay. It, I mentioned a little bit ago, it's a package deal, right? So in other words, if I were to come to you and say, Hey, Christian, I have a place where you can get a 5% a tax free return. Maybe, maybe more as, as interest rates go higher, et cetera, you, we could earn probably more, but, more. Yeah. But at least 5% tax free, yeah. you still have access to the funds. You can still use it with do, do all the other investing that you're going to do anyway, but this is just a bucket where you, where, you know, you can mm. get that return. If at that is a starting point, sign me up. Yeah. Right. Who wouldn't say that? That sounds great, right? That sounds a lot better because all because right now I I put it in my bank account, so like five percent tax free sounds a lot better than that. Yeah, 
So really what it boils down to is that the value we're getting out of it is much greater than the costs, which was true in the business example, in the real estate example, in the stock example, in really anywhere where you put, where you take on costs in order to participate because you feel like in the long run, you're going to come out better. So basically, oh, sorry, keep going. Well, I was going to say in this one, uh, like with the business, you hope it works. You're like committed and you're determined that it's going to work, but it may not, right? This one is actually something that comes with a lot of guarantees, mm, right? Interesting, yeah. Do I know exactly where I'm going to be in 20 years? No, I don't know exactly where I will be, but I have a pretty good idea because I know it comes with guarantees. The dividend isn't guaranteed, but the companies are very consistent paying it out. So compared to some of these other examples, I actually have a little more uh, predictability in understanding what where I'm going to be in the future with it. You know, I like this point. I, and there's two points that I'll just kind of hit on. The 5% return is happening after the cost. Now, we've yes. probably made that clear, but I'm going to be ultra clear about it. We're not talking about, hey, you pay the cost in the first year, and then after you've done that, you get this 5% return. Because really, obviously, that, that would mean that it's not really a 5% return. You'd be mm-hmm. have a drag. Well, what mm-hmm. we're suggesting is this 5 plus percent return happens over the long term and and again it could be over 50 years like it's just going to be ultra consistent over a long period of time and yep. that's going to happen no matter it just it is the way that it works right yeah yep. okay net of costs net of costs i think that's important um the other point that i just wanted to hit on before we wrap up rod is this idea that the value is greater than the cost so yesterday rod i was reading this article and they were talking about how the big firms charge absorbent fees for for their services, right? And they mm-hmm. specifically gave an example of Bain Capital who was charging three and 30. So what does that mean? That means that there's a 3% on the underlying asset, which by the way, is way higher than the benchmark. Normally, even inside of a hedge fund, it's like two and 20. So, okay. so that's so three and 30 is 50% more than what the standard is, right? Pretty significant. 3% on the underlying asset and then 30% on any gain. So that means that before the investor gets any money, they mm-hmm. have to take their 3% asset fee and then they have to take the 30% of any of the gains. Well, here's the question to me, Rod. Why in the world would anybody do that? Well, actually, there's a good reason. They do it because they believe that they're going to be able to, after those fees that they're charging, still produce a really great return. Now, we're not talking about the speculation that exists Mm -hmm. inside of hedge funds. We're talking about saying like, just know that I'm going to produce this five plus percent return. I don't even have to be speculative about it, but it's happening regardless of where those fees are at. So here's the deal. If they charge me 20%, but I get all of the benefits of having you know, the five, the, all of the benefits that come back to me, I don't really care what the charge and what the cost is. I really care what the value and the benefit is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And the example you used earlier where we, where we did that side by side, the, the investment optimizer person versus the, the person who's using the savings account, the end at that 20 million or that 20 year point where we had that $2 million difference that factored in all costs all of the upfront costs, all of the costs, like interest that, that was paid along the way as we're flowing loans, all that kind of stuff. It it incorporated all of those things and you ended up with $2 million more 
than you mm. would have if you had only used the savings account. Well said, Rod. This has been the Money Insights Podcast. Thanks for hanging out with us and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights Podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.